This is the Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Tables listeners. Thanks for joining us on another great episode this week. I'm joined by Dr. Ashley Manuk, who is a family physician in the Trenton Memorial Hospital in Trenton, Ontario. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Karen. Happy to be back. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host, uh, who joins you each and every week to bring you interesting new medical studies and the latest, greatest research. And Ashley's going to kick it off with the study that she chose for the week, and it is a pure doozy. Ashley, what did you choose? <laughs> well, thanks for the pun, Kieran. This study is called PURE, which stands for Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology Study. Uh, this particular study is part of this larger PURE study, and this study in particular is looking at associations of fat and carbohydrate intake with cardiovascular disease and mortality in a large cohort. That sounds sweet and meaty. Ashley, what's the bottom line for this study? Well, in this large prospective multinational cohort study, high carbohydrate intake was associated with increased risk of total mortality and non-cardiovascular disease mortality. By contrast, higher fat intake, including saturated fat, was associated with lower risk of total mortality, non-cardiovascular disease mortality, and stroke, with no associated increased risk of cardiovascular events or deaths. Wow, that's a mouthful. It was. I'm sorry, I just can't help myself. <laughs> so Ashley, tell me, why did you choose this uh, article? Can you frame it for us? What's the importance of it? Well, with the growing burden of cardiovascular and diet-related disease, there is a widespread effort to update our current dietary guidelines. As many people know, the current guidelines have been under fire recently for relying too heavily on poor quality data. So consider the well-known you know, recommendations to decrease saturated fat based on its effect on LDL cholesterol. This has essentially become almost a dogma in our society. And recently, there's more and more data surfacing to suggest that saturated fat may not be the demon we once thought. And I chose this study because it aims to determine the impact of the various macronutrients, so carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, on mortality and cardiovascular events in a very large and diverse cohort. So hopefully it will help us kind of update our current guidelines. And I got to say, you always choose very interesting studies that are especially related to nutrients and diet in our world. For those regular listeners who recall, Ashley took us through the sugar scandal that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, sort of the peek into the diaries of the sugar industry. So I wonder if this has a similar flavor, so to speak, when it comes to the impact of fats on diet, and will we change our thoughts? We shall see. Ashley, I can't wait. <laughs> What's the methodology of this study? What did they uh, do to, in their design, and where did they uh, conduct it? So, uh, as I said before, this is a very large prospective cohort study that covers 18 countries on five continents. Again, this is part of the larger PURE study that's coordinated by the Population Health Institute in Hamilton, Ontario. Largest global study looking at environmental, societal, biological influences on obesity and chronic health conditions. So the 18 countries they took participants from here included three high-income countries, Canada, Sweden, and the United Arab Emirates, 11 middle-income countries, including China, Colombia, Poland, Turkey, and then four low-income countries, including India and Pakistan. So very socioeconomically and culturally diverse population here. Wow, this is truly an ambitious study. I can't wait to find out more. Yes. Who were the patients specifically? Did they have any focused inclusion and exclusion criteria? Minimally. So the participants are 135,000 individuals aged 35 to 70 years, recruited between 2003 and 2013. 
And the goal in this study was to enroll an unbiased sample of households within the participating communities. And households in this case were eligible if at least one member was age 35 to 70, and the household intended to stay in the current address for another four years. And that's just for follow-up purposes. Now, about 5% of the cohort was excluded from the present study due to having a history of cardiovascular disease. Right, that makes sense. I mean, they're trying to assess cardiovascular disease incidence. Doesn't make sense if somebody already has it. I think it's a simple, broad, and all-inclusive design. Exactly. Um, the devil might be in the details, so let's find out a little bit more. What did they do as far as the exposure in this observational type study? Right. So it's an observational study, so there wasn't any intervention per se, but the primary aim of the study is to assess the association of fats, total, saturated, and unsaturated, and carbohydrate with total mortality and cardiovascular disease events. So how did they assess dietary intake? Well, each participant filled out a validated food frequency questionnaire, they call it an FFQ, at baseline to assess their habitual food intake. And based on this, the participants were divided into quintiles of nutrient intake based on the percentage of energy provided by each macronutrient. So take carbohydrate, for example. The median carbohydrate intake was 46% in quintile one versus 77% in quintile five. For fats, you know, the median intake was 10% in quintile one versus 35% in quintile five. Hmm. And obviously, this kind of a really broad reaching study is going to have a lot of potential influences of other things that people do that might go along with their diet, so-called confounders. Did they assess for any of those, you know, things like physical activity, smoking, education, etc.? Uh, yeah, there was extensive adjusting here. So all results were adjusted for age, sex, total energy intake, smoking, physical activity, history of diabetes, waist to hip ratio, and socioeconomic factors. In fact, they used four different measures of socioeconomic status to try to really uh, control for wealth, for example. Well, this is a very well sounding design study. And of course, we would expect that from the Population Health Research Institute in Hamilton, who is one of the epicenter of these types of studies. Ashley, what you said they were looking at the association between macronutrient intake and cardiovascular death. What was their pr actual primary outcome? What was the thing they were really focusing on? How did they measure it? So the primary outcome is total mortality and major cardiovascular events. And secondary outcomes were all MIs, stroke, cardiovascular disease mortality, and non-cardiovascular disease mortality. And these were expressed using incidence and corresponding hazard ratios. And just uh, because I didn't mention before the sort of follow-up period, that varied based on the date of recruitment, but the median follow-up period was 7.4 years, so fairly long. And during that time, the patients were contacted annually, either by phone or face-to-face -face interviews. Well, my table is certainly set. I'm ready to dive in at this delicious meal. <laughs> what did they find? Well, in comparisons between quintile 5 and quintile 1, higher carbohydrate intake was associated with a significantly higher risk of total mortality, with a hazard ratio of 1.28, as well as non-cardiovascular disease mortality. There was no association between carb intake and cardiovascular disease mortality or events. Conversely, higher fat intake was associated with a significantly lower risk of total mortality, hazard ratio 0 0.77, 
as well as non-cardiovascular disease mortality and stroke. Again, no significant association with major cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease mortality. The same results were seen looking at saturated fat alone. Uh, in fact, using some fancy statistics, the researchers estimated that isocaloric replacement of 5% of energy intake from carbohydrates to saturated fat would be associated with a 20% lower risk of stroke. Does that make sense? Yeah. So just to put it in numerical context for our listeners, or maybe a bit more lay terms, let's hope, it sounds like, and looking at the tables as well, over a period of about seven years, you had a roughly 3% increase in total mortality per thousand person years. So three people in a thousand would, would die in one year between quintile one, the lowest intake of carbohydrate, uh, and quintile five, the highest uh, intake of carbohydrates. That corresponds to your hazard ratio of 1.28, which is a sort of a takes into a relative risk and time in one a composite outcome. So hopefully that makes more sense. Anything else, Ashley, uh, important to point out? Well, total protein similarly inversely associated with total mortality and non-cardiovascular disease mortality. Interestingly, animal protein intake was associated with lower mortality with no significant association seen with plant protein. And results were not changed when uh, reanalyzed for household income, wealth, or uh, the economic level of the country. Also, the association of fats and carbohydrates to mortality were the same for Asian and non-Asian countries. This was looked at in subgroup analysis, given that in Asian countries, uh, it's much more common to have a high carbohydrate and lower fat diet versus uh, people in non-Asian countries. Wow, these are pretty fascinating findings. So essentially, we find that the association between death and carbohydrate uh, intake is a positive one. The more carbohydrates you eat, the higher risk of death you have. And the inverse is true for fats and animal protein, and that seems to be consistent among the different subtypes of fat, and you know, regardless of what country you come from. And of course, these are all controlled for all of those important lifestyle factors that we talked about. So I think this is quite impressive. Yeah. Now, I'd be sure to say that, you know, you mentioned the more carbohydrate you eat, the more your risk of death. In, in reality, the increased risk of mortality that uh, was seen with carbohydrates was really for people whose carbohydrate intake was above 60% of their total intake. So, you know, this is not looking at things like low carbohydrate diets. Yeah, that would be interesting to, to know. You know, guidelines often lag behind primary data, but you never know. This is a fairly big study, and I think it's pretty well done. What are your thoughts? Strengths and balances? Anything that you were concerned about uh, in the design or execution of this study? Well, being a study on diet, you know, as we can expect, there are some significant limitations. So for one, the food frequency questionnaires, obviously, they rely on patient reporting. They are, of course, not a measure in any way of absolute intake. And in this study as well, diet was measured only at baseline. So possibly the diet could have changed uh, over during the follow-up period, although it, really this would probably have the effect of weakening the observed associations. Um, and another uh, limitation here is possible residual confounding. So increased fat intake, you know, it might be a reflection of higher income and ability to afford animal fat. Uh, although, as I mentioned before, there was extensive adjustment for socioeconomic status, although we can't exclude the possibility of residual confounding. Right, right. And I think those are all very valid points. But I have to tip my hat to, 
to the researchers here in, in a 10-year cohort study that looks at all of the usual things that you would think are important in many different countries. This is an enormous undertaking, so I really do commend them on an excellently executed study. Do you think these findings should be taken at face value, or, or do you think that those limitations you mentioned are enough that it, it sinks it in its pool of fat? <laughs> um, I, I would say this actually is overall a powerful, well-conducted cohort study. We know from uh, other studies that these uh, food frequency questionnaires, they actually have been shown to be a fairly good indicator of uh, diet, and they've shown this in other studies by you know measuring lipid profiles and, and certain things that show good correspondence. So I'd say overall, I'm pretty impressed with the study. So tell us the, the typical person, you know, your table one, who is the typical individual who they included in this study, given that the diversity of different countries was so wide ranging? The average person in this study was a middle-aged adult, a, you know, average age about 50 years, uh, approximately equal between males and females. Uh, and the participants in the study were moderately to highly physically active. Okay. So Ashley, take it home for us. What's the main learning point that you want listeners to get take away from this study? I'd say that uh, the main point of this study is that eating uh, fat, even uh, saturated fat, may be protective against mortality and stroke without a corresponding increase in cardiovascular risk. And uh, a high carbohydrate diet, on the other hand, might be negatively associated with these outcomes. Chew on that fat for a little while. Thank you, Ashley. Fascinating study. I love what you bring to the table uh, every, uh, every time you're on the show. Let's move on to the study that I chose for this week. I looked at the heart score and its effect on managing patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain. And this was uh, published by Judith Poldervart uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine in August of 2017. Okay, so chest pain, every doctor's uh, dreaded complaint. Tell us what the bottom line for this article was. Well, Ashley, it's close to my heart as well. This randomized trial of over 3,600 patients who presented to the emergency department with chest pain found that the use of the heart score, heart standing for history, electrocardiogram, age, risk factors, and initial troponin, was a safe means of risk stratifying patients for possible discharge. But, unfortunately, it did not impact upon admission, which was possibly due to physician hesitancy. So the heart score, I'll just, just tell you a bit about the heart score. It's, it's a really easy to apply instrument that's been validated previously to stratify patients with chest pain according to their short-term risk for major adverse cardiac events, the MACE, that sort of usual term we use, which was also assessed in your study. But what this study was trying to get at is what is the effect of using this score on daily practice? And that we don't know. I see. Okay. So what was the design of this particular study? So this is what's called a prospective step wedge cluster randomized control trial. Basically, this just means that you have uh, clusters of individuals, in this case clustered by the hospital, that are rolled out sequentially to receive the intervention rather than sort of all at once. And they did this in nine different Dutch hospitals in their emergency departments between 2013 and 2014, so over a one-year time period. 
the design that they had combined elements of what you would know as a standard sort of parallel arm cluster randomized trial. And then they also did an interesting sort of twist. They did a before and after design. So each cluster, that is each hospital, switches to the intervention so that everybody, every cluster, every hospital of these nine hospitals in the trial have a period where they are and they aren't using the heart score. Okay. And how did they choose the participants in the study? So like your study, really simple, really broad, really applicable criteria. Any and all consecutive adult patients who presented to the emergency department with chest pain were included. Full stop. But you were excluded if you had an evident ST elevation MI. Obviously, this is a score to try to help you discharge people. And if you're having an obvious STEMI, it's not going to help you. The patient's got to go for cath. And then they excluded if you had a language barrier or if you were having a recurrent presentation of chest pain. Now, those I were, were concerned about as far as exclusion criteria, because that would really impact upon your sort of application or external validity. But as it turned out, only 84 of the over 4,000 individuals included were excluded for a language barrier, and only 51 individuals were excluded for it being a recurrent presentation. So it turned out not to be a major concern. So this sounds like a fairly complicated study design. Karen, take us to the heart of the matter. Ah, now you're learning, Ashley. I love it. Well, the overall objective, as I said, was to measure the effect of using the heart score on patient outcomes and the use of healthcare resources. So let me t- walk you through it. All hospitals, so there's nine Dutch hospitals, they start with usual care, which just means how a physician would treat a patient who came into that department with chest pain as they usually would. And then every six weeks, one hospital was randomly assigned to switch to heart care, during which physicians calculated the heart score to guide their patient management. Okay. Kara, what were the primary outcomes in this study? So this actually looked at a non-inferiority margin rather than a superiority trial of non-inferiority margin of 3% of an absolute increase in MACE or sort of major adverse cardiac events within a six-week time period of presentation to the emergency department. So really, they're just trying to show that the heart score is not inferior to usual care in helping stratify these patients. The secondary outcomes, given that we're looking at discharge from the emergency department, they looked at healthcare resource utilization, they'd measured some quality of life scores, and they're calculating cost effectiveness overall as well to see the performance of the use of this score. Okay, so here it goes. How did the heart score fare in this study? You sound like your heart is in it. Just over 3,600 patients were included. To just tell you about how those patients slotted into the heart score, 39% were low risk, 47% were intermediate risk, and only 11% were high risk. So you had a big chunk of people who were lower intermediate risk as per the heart score. Major cardiovascular events occurred in about 20% of patients in the entire cohort. So you got a fairly common outcome. And in low-risk patients, just to show you how good that heart score is, the incidence of major cardiovascular events was just about 2%. So it does predict low-risk individuals. Now, here's the thing. They found no statistically significant differences in the rates of early discharge, rates of readmission, rates of recurrent emergency department visits, rates of outpatient visits, or visits to general practitioners at all between the two groups. So we didn't find any differences in all those major outcomes. Their non-inferiority margin was achieved. It was 
just as safe to do heart care than it was to use usual care. That was their primary outcome. And I think one of the reasons that they didn't find any differences in these healthcare utilization outcomes was that non-adherence occurred in about 18% of all patients. So non-adherence, they said, like, you know, for example, if you were defined as a low-risk heart score, you should have been sent home from hospital, but very often they were kept for a serial troponin or admitted for observation. I see. So it sounds like, you know, these doctors were, so to speak, using their gut uh, or their heart maybe more than they might have if they utilized the score. Maybe they're, than their brains, I'm not sure. And I think that's uh, none the more evidenced by the fact that in the low-risk group of people, the low-risk heart score, 41% of those uh, violated the protocol and were sort of non-adherence to the recommendations by the heart score. So even though 18% overall across the group were not adherent to using the heart score recommendations, the highest proportion of those 18% was seen in the low-risk group. Interesting. So what we're seeing is people who are being overly cautious. Mm-hmm. That's what the inference is, although we, you know, we didn't actually do assess why this was. They tried to ask, but they couldn't really, they didn't really get much information out of it in the end. Um, so we don't really know, but, but that's what, that's some of the inferences that are made in the paper. And, you know, just to put this in a bit more context, it costs about, this is a European study, so it costs about 3,000 euros per patient to care for individuals who present to the emergency department with chest pain. So the impetus to try to lower costs are significant. Wow. Yeah. I guess that's not always something that we're thinking about in the emergency department, but something to consider for sure. Certainly our governments uh, and health administrators are, however. Now, who would you say this study applies to? So a typical individual who, who presented to the emergency department was a 62-year-old male. He had one or more cardiovascular risk factor, normal renal function, and in about a third of them, they had a history of coronary artery disease and were on aspirin. But ultimately, of this whole cohort, most of them fell into this low intermediate risk, according to the heart score. So that's sort of your typical patient who shows up in the eMERGE complaining of some chest pain. Now, would your knowledge of this study change your, your own approach to chest pain in any way? I, I got to say, I wasn't a regular heart score user before. I would tend to drift towards the Timmy or the Grace score. Now, that being said, most patients who are referred to me as a general internist are not usually low-risk chest pain. The eMERGE docs do a pretty good job of weeding those out. But occasionally, some of them slip through. So I guess, you know, if this patient, I'm still not totally sure if they're having a coronary event or not, but my intuition somehow tells me that they're even intermediate or somehow low risk, then I might calculate a quick heart score just to, to help guide and validate my decision making in the emergency room. Okay, Kieran. So what are the main takeaway points from this article? I think there's, there's mainly two things really to focus on, Ashley. The heart score for initial assessment of patients with chest pain in the emergency department appears safe, and that's been validated previously, but its effect in clinical practice on healthcare resources is limited. And as you mentioned, it's possibly due to non-adherence to management recommendations and our increasingly risk-adverse practice cultures uh, in medicine. And I think ultimately, really what this study could demonstrate the potential for is that an educational in intervention may play a more important role in the knowledge translation of these high-impact clinical prediction rules, as we've seen here, that they just weren't applied properly, so to speak, uh, despite their accuracy uh, and predictive power. Hmm, interesting. Well, Ashley, great show. 
I had a lot of fun talking about those two articles, but you know I always have a lot more fun at the end of our show when we get to talk about the good stuff, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Ashley, what is catching your attention this week? The article that I caught my eye is something I read in an edition of Scientific American from earlier this year about some researchers investigating energy expenditure in humans. So they actually aimed to look at the difference in energy expenditure between a traditional hunter-gatherer population, of which there is one still existing called the HASDA, compared to just, you know, you and me, regular population. So what they did is they actually, it's called a double labeled water method where they have people drink uh, water with some rare isotopes in it, measure urine output, and they get an, an actual quantifiable exact measure of their energy expenditure. And completely counterintuitively, they found that the Hazda men and women burned roughly the same number of calories as normal adults in the U.S. or Europe. So the men ate and burned about 2,600 calories a day, and the women about 1,900 calories a day. And this was, you know, accounting for effects of body size, fat percentage, age, and sex. There really was no difference. Um, And this is not an isolated finding. They have found that captive primates living in labs and zoos expend the same number of calories each day as those in the wild despite obvious differences in physical activity. So this is something that has been found time and time again. They are thinking now that energy expenditure is something that our body keeps in relative homeostasis, similar to body temperature or blood sugar. And it's super counterintuitive because we're thinking, well, if if you're playing hockey every day, how is it possible that your calorie expenditure is the same as someone who's couch potato? But we have to remember that the physical exercise we do really only accounts for a minority of the energy we expend. In reality, we're expending calories on sort of behind the scenes things like our brains and our kidney function and all those things that are happening inside your body that you don't think about. And that's, you know, this is a very good reason why we may see that exercise is really not a good way to lose weight. Hmm. But just to be clear, as a family physician, you're not endorsing people be a couch potato. Am I clear? Am I correct on that? Uh, you'd be very correct. Exercise has numerous... This is what I say. This is what I tell people. If I could prescribe you one medication in the whole world, it would be exercise, but it's not a weight loss drug. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Ashley. So I chose an article from the New York Times this week, I'm going to entitle To Fight From Within. And it is about the fact that a federal drug agency in the United States just approved the first gene-altering leukemia treatment that costs $475,000 for the treatment. Now, that seems like a headline in and of itself, but the excitement that I got, and I think the excitement that a lot of the news is covering, isn't over the drug itself, which targets, it's a rare but aggressive form of childhood B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, Uh, nor is it the price tag, you know, that's a lot of money, And even though that's on par with the infamous ecoluzumab uh, that treats PNH, for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's really cool because of how this treatment works, which is to say it genetically alters a patient's own cells to fight cancer. And this is a milestone in cancer treatment and research that is expected to really transform the treatment for cancer in the coming years. So just briefly, 
how it works is patients provide their own T-cells. Those are frozen and shipped to the Novartis Labs, which is the company that makes this drug, in New Jersey. And they undergo genetic engineering using viral vectors, whereby the T-cells are reprogrammed to recognize cancer cell antigens as foreign and initi initiate immune responses against it. Then those you know, newly programmed cells are frozen again and shipped back to the medical center to be dripped into the patient who then undergoes treatment. And the results are extremely promising in this rare form of cancer that really has incredible recurrence rates. And it's, it's showing very promising results in reducing that. But I thought, isn't it pretty awesome just to think about how we're changing the way that we treat disease and cancer in this case? Wow, that is some next level medicine kind of thing that makes you excited to see what's to come. I can't wait. It uh, hopefully comes in our lifetime. Well, Ashley, thanks for another great show. You, I can't think of a good pun for this one, but we really appreciated you having <laughs> you on here. Uh, and we hope to have you back sometime soon. Thanks. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. Mm -hmm.